Welcome back, happy listeners. We are here with special guest Mark Cullen, who is Canada's premier expert on all things plants. He has recently written a book with his son, Ben Cullen, Escape to Reality. He has been featured on it several times in Toronto Star, producer of his own podcast, The Green File, and owner-founder of Cullen's Foods that has a brand new line of organic canned foods like lentils, chickpeas, and kidney beans, among others. Welcome, Mark. We are so excited to talk with you today. So, Mark, I uh, was wondering if you could start off with a little background. You know, when did you first realize you had a, a real keen interest in plants? I was raised in the environment of a gardener. My father was a career gardener, and his uh, mentor, I want to say my uncle, because we called him Uncle John, uh, John Wheel, um, uh, introduced my father to gardening at a very young age, when he was 16. Um, my dad was his paper boy. And uh, John invited him to come over to his home in North Toronto in 1943 to dig perennials and divide them and and, uh, plant them in a client's home. John was a Brit. He uh, was born in um, 1891, moved to Canada in 1922 because after the First World War, there wasn't much going on in Great Britain in terms of job opportunities. And so the pedigree, to answer your question, goes back about three generations. Now my son has joined me in the in the business, and he's the fourth generation uh, gardener. And um, I, I think that's probably the answer. It was more of an evolution. When we first spoke on the phone, um, I had spoken to you about an article that you that you were mentioned in the as a plant whisperer, and your work with plant communication. And although you have many new projects going on, can you talk about what you discovered with the research you had done with mold and fungus using different forms of communication, whether they formed whether they communicated with each other or other plants? Well, thinking of plants as something more than a nice to have and a contributor to our green environment, uh, the idea of just the, how important the role of plants are in our lives as human beings has always fascinated me. And I happened to run across a book, What Plants Know, by Daniel, Dr. Daniel Chemovitz. And he's a professor at uh, Tel Aviv University. And the book fascinated me to the extent that I wrote two rather lengthy articles, 1,200-word articles, in the Toronto Star uh, about what I learned through his book. Uh, And the answer to your question regarding fungi uh, could become very complicated. So uh, being a garden communicator, I feel my primary task responsibility, if you will, is to take um, the somewhat complex ideas and concepts and boil them down into language and and, um, ideas that the average North American can digest, the average gardener can digest and find useful. And if it's not useful, I tend not to share it. I found his book and the contents of his book extremely useful. And he does talk about fungi and the role of fungi in um, a plant's ability to communicate uh, with other plants. And we can talk about what other things they communicate with, if you like. Uh, But it's so much more than just fungi. It's also mycorrhiza. Mycorrhiza, if you're digging a hole in your garden and you happen to see these very, you have to look for this because we've all seen it. We haven't all observed it. And they're very fine white webs. They look like spider webs that move through the soil and they actually connect the plant's root zone to Mm -hmm. the nutrients that are in the soil and and provide for the plant 
the ability of the plant to draw nutrients out of the soil. Because when we talk about fertilizing a plant with plant food, you're not feeding the plant. You're providing you're providing nutrients to the soil that the plant hopefully can access. And there's yeah. there's a very distinct difference. How does a plant do it? It does it through mycorrhiza and beneficial fungus and bacteria and insects, beneficial insects. Uh, so you see how complicated it can become, but it doesn't need to be because plants think for themselves. Plants function for themselves. All we do as gardeners is enable them at their very highest level because that's what successful gardening is really all about. Most of us tend not to think about it that way. No, but it but it makes sense just in my own experience. Um you know, setting up new gardens. We we just moved to to a new house, and last year we were planting everything. And really, uh, that makes a lot of sense considering that all our new plantings are in brand new soil that was just turned. There's no, there's not a lot of there is that web doesn't exist yet, um, and having to having to mitigate um, an environment that is hospitable for them, for their root system, for the, for the, the trees and the entire gardens to, to actually take. Well, I think it's um, interesting, Ariel, that you already know that. So it tells me that you have a basic understanding about how plants work that most North Americans do not. They don't, they don't really understand that what goes on beneath the surface of the soil is much more important than what goes on above the surface of the soil. But because our world is above the surface of the soil, we tend not to think about what's mm-hmm. going on under there. And there's some very wonderful, dynamic, and mysterious things that go on at the root zone of the plants that we love. So when he's talking in his book, when, when these other references are, are made to kind of plant communication, would you say that actually, then, the communication happens below the soil? It's not something that, that is above ground with the the growth of the plant itself you know people have said you know in in different articles that oh they're sensing something they are they are um communicating through their growth their their ability to uh, interact with light but that you're actually saying that it is more really the root system it's everything is really happening below the surface so my my notion is, and I'm not a scientist, so I know mm-hmm. what I read would indicate that uh, most of the communication, most of the support that a plant draws from the world around it is uh, in the soil. But it would be wrong to say that it's a black and white situation. It's mm-hmm. not the soil exclusively. Right. And it, it, a lot of what goes on above the soil, of course, has an impact on uh, that, the plant and its ability to grow and thrive. Uh, the wind. The rain, the contents of the rain, the air, the, uh, all those things have an impact. And if you'd really like to learn more about this, um, a book I've read more recently than What Plants Know is mm-hmm. Paul, Peter Wallenbein's uh, book, a German. It was translated into English. It's called The Hidden Life of Trees. Have you heard of it? I haven't. It was on the New York Times bestsellers list for over a year. Can you imagine a book about trees. This is the technical stuff about trees and nice. how they communicate and, and how they grow and how they thrive and the role that they play in the world, but environmentally and the human world also in terms of, you know, how we socialize with trees. Can you imagine somebody writing a chapter about how humans socialize with trees and trees socialize without, with each other? 
Well, it's all in there, the hidden life of trees. It's fascinating. And Excellent. it opens your eyes to a new reality, a new reality that trees live with. And uh, it's not all about the trees in in the mountains of Colorado or the, the hinterland, what I call the moose, moose pasture in northern Ontario. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's also about what he calls street kids. Street kids are city trees. Street kids communicate with one another, providing they're planted in a proximity where they can. So they have to be planted close enough together that they can communicate. It's fascinating to read his book and get a new understanding of how that communication happens. Wow. Wow. So that, that kind of leads into my, my other question, which was, you know, do you believe that all plants, not just fungus, can have complex systems of communication, which when I think about that, I'm also reminded of the, the well, I don't know, for lack of a better word, groves of aspens here in Colorado that are considered symbiotic, that are a one, like a single organism um, as when they're planted together, when they grow together. He talks about that. He talks about the aspens of the American West. And he there is, a, and I can't tell you specifically where it is, but there is a mention in the book, as I recall, of the largest single uh, interconnected um, or, uh, tree organism. And it seems to me, it's just massive. It's, it's just one tree that sprouted more trees and are all connected by roots over a massive uh, area. And when you know when you read that, you you really shake your head. Like yes. now I see life as a tree entirely differently. And he writes in language that all of us understand, which is why it was so successful on the mass market. Wow. Wow. That's I will we're gonna have to get that book, Jason. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Way, it's, a, it's a YouTube, it's also a YouTube video. Okay. Uh, which uh, I paid five bucks for last month to watch. And, uh, you know, I would urge all of your listeners and followers to look for it, um, pay the five bucks. And even if you turn, if you muted it and watched it, the photography is absolutely stunning. This <laughs> is National Geographic quality, maybe even better. Okay. Nice. Fantastic. Nice. Yeah, we'll definitely look for that and post a link. So um, we understand that bird watching is also a hobby of yours, and many understand that ecosystems are independent of each other. But can you explain how the role of our supporting a local bird population can actually enhance or encourage local plant life, flora? Well, absolutely. And, and, and you know, it's funny that something that appears so obvious, like a bird at your bird feeder, can be easily taken for granted. There's a beautiful cardinal in the cardinal in the snow, as an example. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's an image I have because it was my, one of my mother's favorite images, and she liked to wear sweaters with cardinals on them. Um, it, it, these that's sort of like the panda bear of the of the bird world, you know, or mm -hmm. if you like uh, the the killer whale of the bird world. It it's, it's it it has a certain appeal that people uh, love and are attracted to. But beneath the surface of the beautiful bird, the beautiful red cartel, is a story about, um, uh, about the benefits of enhancing and protecting our bird population because they literally are, environmentally speaking, uh, and in terms of climate change, our bird population literally are the canaries in the coal mine. And if they're healthy, 
that is a direct reflection of a healthy environment. If they're not healthy, mm. that's not healthy, by the way, and we're losing species every year, uh, are just literally going extinct, then we need to explore why that is so. And when we understand better why that is so, then we can do things. We can answer some of those questions about what is the natural solution to climate change? What are some of the, the nature solutions, as they call them, uh, to, to climate change? And birds hold some of the answers to those questions. To be a little bit more specific and to answer your question about how they benefit us, they spread seeds. You see them out there foraging in your echinacea, right? Mm -hmm. or, yes. Or whatever. Yes. And what are they doing? Well, they're pecking away at seeds. And uh, they're moving them around your garden, but they're also moving them five miles down the road to you, to, to a meadow, to your neighbor's garden. Um, and, 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 and as they eat them, of course, their droppings, their droppings contain seeds, sometimes not well digested, that germinate elsewhere. And so it becomes a service to the plant world in that it helps native species to move through the geography. Wow. Okay. Right? So yes. when you think about it, how did how did the trembling aspens of Colorado ever get there? I don't know, but maybe birds had something to do with it. More than likely wind, because um, uh, seeds are spread in a variety of ways. Some are spread by birds primarily, others are spread by wind, like the the, the fluffy uh, seeds of the of the aspen. So, bad example, Mark. Um, and birds, <laughs> I like to I like to tease people who complain about bird poop on their car. Right? This is <laughs> somebody will say, "I've got a nest of robins on uh, uh, in a tree above my driveway, and it poops on my car. I hate those things." Yeah, <laughs> and you know, and you know, my, my response to that is, it's the same with Canada geese. Canada geese are everywhere, right? They say there's eight yes. million Canada geese in North America. Uh, and I'm sure Americans are saying, I wish Canadians would just keep them home. <laughs> and maybe no. we would if we could. But my point is, the free fertilizer they provide can't be underestimated. And so golf course superintendents and golf golfers are probably laughing right now because they curse Canada geese. <laughs> uh, but the, you know, the truth is, it, whatever they poop is nitrogen-rich. It's... It, it's about 15 to 20 percent nitrogen. Now, think about oh, wow. what you do every spring when you go to the garden retailer, right? You yeah, re redoing the soil. You buy, yeah. you buy some miracle grow, whatever. And, you know, this is going to make my plants grow. Well, in the three number analysis of every fertilizer package, the first number is nitrogen. Yeah. Nitrogen is what bird droppings are rich in. Now, if you get too much of them, they can actually burn a plant. That's a whole other. That's a whole other subject, and the reason why we don't use chicken manure on plants unless it's well watered down. So, birds. Long answer to your question. I'm sorry. Birds oh, no. have a tremendous role in the environment, and therefore in our world because we are connected to the environment. Just by watching birds, we become connected and more sensitized, I think, to the environment through our love of birds. And so I think it's a very important thing that we do. And if I might add one other thing to that, because I spent a lot of time in the United Kingdom. I have a daughter who lives in London, England. 
And uh, she lives there because we introduced her to the UK when she was about 12 years old. She fell in love with it. And so she goes over, works for a while, falls in love with a Brit, and now she lives there. So I go there <laughs> two, three, four times a year when it's not COVID-19. And um, you know what I've discovered? Mm. That bird watching has evolved into insect watching. Now, this is an entirely mm. different sort of pastime. Mm-hmm. You can't just sit at your kitchen windows or you know look out your kitchen <laughs> window and see a red cardinal um the same way you would see insects you got to go out and look for them but insect mm-hmm. hotels so i have about six insect hotels now in my garden and insect wow. hotels are designed to attract beneficials we refer to them beneficials uh rather like that's a short form for insects that are beneficial to the environment i.e not japanese beetles uh, like ladybugs. Some of the critters that drive us crazy. But we start this conversation about attracting insects to our garden uh, using insect hotels by acknowledging that 99%, more or less, of the insects in our garden are beneficial. Mm-hmm. And yet, when we see the Japanese beetle, what's the first thing we do? We reach for an insecticide to kill them not realizing or not wanting perhaps to acknowledge that by doing so, we're actually killing off a lot of beneficial insects as well. And Mm. so that's where the whole conversation about organic gardening comes from then, you know, gardening in the absence of synthetic chemical. One of those populations, I think, uh, is the honeybee and the bumbles. Well, absolutely. So, you know, bees fascinate me as they do. I'm sure many of your listeners, um, the interesting thing about honeybees is they they work hard, absolutely, and they produce honey. They get all the press. They get like 98% of the press, and the native bee population gets the other 2%. Why is that? Well, when you think about it, in North America, we have over 2,000 native bee species. In Canada, there's over 600. Wow. Where I live in Ontario, there's 280 native bee species, and none of them are honeybees. Honeybees are a European import. They're native to Europe, really? not North America. And the reason that they get all the press is because they are an economic contributor. They produce honey, right? They mm-hmm. produce honey. We all love honey. If you're not allergic to it, you probably love it. And uh, so they get all the press. That's not a bad thing. I think it's a good thing because it opens the door for people like me to say, Well, this is wonderful about honeybees. I have honeybees, by the way. I have seven hives that my daughter manages for me on my property. And uh, I love the idea of honeybees. And I love what they do in the garden, by the way. Their single function to benefit humankind, by the way, it's not just the production of honey. 30% of the food we eat is pollinated by bees. Mm -hmm. Notice I didn't say honeybees. By bees. Bees, hmm. including those natives that I just mentioned. This is mm-hmm. important to know because many of the native bees are much better and effective and efficient pollinators than honeybees are. The difference is we can manage honeybees. So if you go to California, for instance, and other parts of the United States, you'll know probably that there are people who actually move bees around the country depending on the crops that need pollinated. So if you're growing almonds in California, you call the bee guy and he shows up with a transport truck full of beehives and he lets them go 
and your almonds get pollinated. It's a wow. pretty nifty. It's a pretty nifty business, right? And there's a lot yeah. been re- been written about that, and you you know if you if you Google that, you'll find all kinds of information. But, okay. Uh, I digress. I think <laughs> I've digressed from your. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> That's all right. Very interesting um, digression. <laughs> exactly. Um, so your latest book, Escape to Reality, mentions that gardening literally can change us from the inside out. Could you speak more about how immersing yourself in horticulture has been healing for you and in others that you yourself have seen? Well, I'm so glad you brought that up, Ariel. Um, the thing is, the book is called Escape to Reality, how the world is changing gardening, and gardening is changing the world. We wrote this, I wrote the, I co-wrote this with my son, Ben, and we published it the November before COVID hit. And it, the, the words in this book have never been more relevant than they have been over the last couple of years since COVID arrived. And I, and I say that because we talk about the benefits of gardening to humankind. You, you have the human experience you have, that the, the experience humans have in nature, and they intersect, right? Mm-hmm. Unless, of course, all we want to do is stay in the house and play on our computer 24-7. That's fine. Then you'll never get that. But most of us have this desire to connect with nature. And the first answer to your question is the most natural place for humankind to intersect with nature, to learn from nature, to have an opportunity to observe nature and benefit from that experience is right outside our back door. Now, You may live in a condominium and you might have a balcony. Well, the plants that you put in a container on that balcony can benefit you in ways that are difficult to measure. But we know that the benefits exist. So back to your question uh, about the book, Escape to Reality, How the World is Changing Gardening and Gardening is Changing the World. What we really mean is how gardening is changing our world, your world, my world. And the interesting thing about the health benefits of gardening is that to a large extent, I suggest, and again, I'm not a scientist or a doctor, but to a large extent, those benefits accrue when we allow them to. And so I devote some Mm -hmm. time in the book, and my son Ben as well, of course, to being purposeful about connecting with nature when we're out in the garden. So your lawn is more than just a framework for the rest of your yard, right? It's more mm-hmm. than just a place where the kids can kick a ball. It is a place that sequesters carbon. It, it produces oxygen. It filters toxins out to you. The same way that your pollinator garden will talk to you. And that opens up a whole bunch of questions about, well, what do you need? How, how does your garden talk to you? And I'm happy have to explain that, if you will. Yes, please. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I guess that was a question. How, how does your talk, garden talk to you? Well, I'm going to tell you a story and share something rather personal that I reflect on in the book that will help you understand what I'm talking about. Um, eight years ago, I was diagnosed with cancer, and um, nobody was, was more shocked at the news than me because I felt just fine. There was nothing, nothing about my body that I was aware of that would indicate that I had cancer, but I did. And it was prostate cancer, so 
um, the urologist uh, did the, a variety of tests, and um, he said, yeah, you got cancer. You know, a month after a bunch of tests, he says, yep, you got cancer. Okay, so some people live with prostate cancer, and they tend to do okay. But he said, Mark, you can't do that. You, you have to do something about this. It's, it's that serious. So, all right, what are my options? He laid my options out for me, and I decided on a radical prosectomy, which means that I had to go into the hospital. And I remember going in for the pre-op, and the doctor went through all my stuff and asked me all these questions. And then she looked at me, she took her glasses off, and she said, do you know how serious this operation is? Because I'm thinking the only other time I was ever in the hospital was to get my tonsils out which ages me, right? <laughs> when I was a kid, that's what they did. They took their tonsils out if you, for whatever reason. And that was the only time I'd ever been to the hospital for my own purpose. And I said to her, well, no, I don't really know how serious. She said, on a scale of one to five, it's a four. And I said, oh, well, what does that mean? She said, that means the recovery is going to be two months, six weeks at the very least. And don't you even think about pushing a lawnmower, swinging a golf club. And she went on and she gave me sort of a list of things that I could expect. And um, then I went in, got the operation, mm -hmm. and I was, I was having difficulty, I'm going to be honest with you, get, getting my head around the fact that I was going to have to slow down. Mm. I wouldn't be able to go out and dig holes and plant my garden. I, I would have to sit on the front porch of our house. Fortunately, our, we live on a little bit of property, and I have a porch, and I would have to sit on the porch and read or sleep or whatever I did. That's what I did. And you know, it was life-transforming. Cancer changed my life. And by the way, I'm cancer-free now, and that, that's the end of that story, and I'm very <laughs> happy to say that it's a good, that's a good ending. Right. Yes. So many it's an excellent don't, ending. don't have that, that, that outcome. But what was so good for me was being forced to do nothing for <laughs> two months. And it was June, June 13th yeah. was the day of the procedure. So it was like most of the summer I spent doing nothing. When I say nothing, I couldn't do the physical things that I wanted to do. And I counted the chairs, the benches, the places that you can sit in my garden. And I counted mm -hmm. 23. And wow. I never sat in any of them. And gardeners, if, if gardeners do this, yes. they sometimes become so obsessed with weeding and mulching and pruning and planting and deadheading and gathering flowers for the kitchen table that you know, forget to sit hmm. and absorb what they have accomplished out there, mm -hmm. what they have accomplished in partnership with Mother Nature. And we talk about that in the book as well. How our work in the garden is, we can't take credit for that. We can take a little bit of credit for that, but really it's nature at work mm -hmm. in the garden. All we're doing is facilitating a process that creates something either beautiful or productive or both, right? Productive in the case of food plants. Mm -hmm. So I sat. And I look, and I watched the garden, and I and I became aware of things in the garden that I had never seen or experienced before, and I started to absorb them. And it was one day when I was sitting on this bench near my pond, and I'm watching the fish, I'm feeding the fish, and a hummingbird buzzes me, and I realized that I really needed to look at my gardening experience differently. And that's when I started going down this road of 
taking some carving some time out of every day to slow down and absorb what was going on around me. The sound of the wind in the leaves, the sound of the honeybees in my flowers, the uh, insects that move through the garden, where they're going, what they're doing. It's, it's fascinating. And you know, when I talk about native bees, you'll have listeners who will go, what native bees? I've never seen a native bee. Well, you've seen a bumblebee. So a bumblebee is a native bee, and there's a few of them. But mason bees are extremely active right across the continent. And uh, we have all seen mason bees. They're generally tiny little black bees. I'm going to say a quarter of an inch to half an inch long at the most. And they're extremely active. And they're better pollinators, more effective pollinators than honeybees by far. Uh, we've all seen them, and we've dismissed them. And we do a lot of that. Humans do a lot of that. We tend to dismiss things. We tend, we tend to dismiss even the tree on their neighbor's yard that hangs over our back fence. We dismiss it as, oh, yeah, i got to rake up those leaves again this fall, don't I? That, that is a very common perception of the role trees have in our lives, which is so unfortunate, so unfortunate, uh, because if, when we really look at the benefits of living with plants, we see them differently. So we are plant blind. There's such a thing as plant blindness. Mm -hmm. uh, and there was a couple in American university whose name I forget, university I forget, but they came up with this concept of plant blindness in the 1990s. And it's one that we talk about a lot uh, because it's true. You look at a picture of a garden and uh, if there's a person in the garden or a cat or a dog or a tiger, our eye automatically goes to that thing. We don't see the plants. We don't see the trees. We take the green living world around us for granted. And gardening provides for us to get to go full circle here and get right back to your question. Gardening provides an opportunity for us to attach greater value to the natural world that surrounds us. And that's what we mean by escape to reality. When people say, um, I, I need to escape to reality. Uh, they often mean um, that they're going to turn on the TV and watch Jeopardy or, you know, the favorite <laughs> TV show or something like that. That's their reality, right? And right. what we're saying is, no, no, the, rea our, the real reality that humankind lives in is not to be found inside the house or the office or, the, you know, the workplace. The real reality that we live in is out there, and you've got to go find it. Right. So, so this this process you were just describing of kind of slowing down and, you know, just being able to take the time and to observe, um, you know, what's what's going on in the natural world, what's going on with the plants, and what's going on with the bees, and all these these observations you're making as you're as you're just taking a minute to to just slow down. Um, it, you you've, you sort of answered the question I was going to ask about the title. You know, a lot of us think of reality as something to escape from but you're but here you're saying you're escaping to it and and what you just described i think answers that question is like you know, exactly yeah being um, able to engage we think that our reality um the, the thing like think about the things that stress you and you're probably thinking about your reality well if if you believe that's your reality you're probably right and what we're suggesting is there's another reality, and it's the reality 
of being human, which is we are members of the animal kingdom, in the world of nature. And each generation over the last, you know, since industrialization, I think, we have distanced ourselves further and further from nature. And gardening is an opportunity to reconnect with nature. Right. And it seems like even, you know, even before the pandemic started, um, there has been maybe a renewed interest in urban gardening, you know, rooftop gardening, uh, and so on. I don't know if this, if it's, if you've seen similar kinds of trends in Canada, I just wanted to know if you might might want to speak to that. Absolutely. It's universal. Um, we're, we're fine. We're finding it everywhere, everywhere. Europe also, there has been an explosion in the popularity of gardening and it's, it's not just food gardening. Food gardening is exploding because People are concerned about food security and et cetera, a whole bunch of reasons for that. But um, the idea of gardening uh, and the demand for plants and all of the ancillary products that are sold to help us succeed in the garden have exploded in popularity. Absolutely. And have you found that there is a difference in organic growing standards between Canada and other countries? As people are getting more well, I interested don't think in it. so. Uh, the truth, the truth is, a lot of a lot now. I don't have a very deep understanding of what a certified organic grower in Canada versus the United States is. So I'm not sure my answer is well qualified. My son actually, because he grows and markets a line of organic, locally grown beans. Uh, when I say locally, I mean Canadian-grown beans, i.e. not from the other side of the Pacific. And um, he would have a better understanding of that. He sits on the board of the uh, Canadian Organic Conf- um, Council. Uh, my, my notion is, is that actually a lot of what we've learned about growing organically, we learned from Americans. Uh, in uh, the Northeast, there's the Rodale Institute which go back to before the, the, the Second World War, when, uh, when Mr. Rodale, I'm trying to think of his first name, anyway, his daughter took it over, and she's running it now. And, and it, you know, long story short, I've always been a subscriber to organic gardening, i.e. the American version of organic gardening, and it's always made sense to me. Um, okay. We noticed your son, Ben, is a you know, pretty vital and active participant in most of your projects. Um, and, and, I, and you were you were you were speaking to this a bit earlier, you know, the you know, the tradition. Um, but when did you when did you sort of notice you, he, uh, your son was interested in uh, in in gardening and plants? Well, I'm not sure I ever did. Uh, he. Um, flew the flag of agriculture when he was um, leaving high school, graduating high school, and looking for post-secondary education. Uh, His guidance counselor suggested he consider uh, a community college program that specialized in agriculture. And he he had never expressed an interest in gardening per se, uh, other than, you know, typical kid stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, at 18 years old, I think, uh, he thought that the farming community looked like an intriguing one to him. He wasn't raised in the farming community. So he ended up in agricultural college, the only student in his class, in his graduating class, 
who did not come from an agricultural family. Uh, and so for him, it truly was a learning curve, and he learned a lot. And to this day, I'm fast-forwarding 10 years now since he graduated, uh, he, um, his, his circle of friends uh, is dominated by the guys and, and, and some girls, women, that he met through ag, ag college. And uh, so his, his interest in gardening is different from mine. I came from ornamental agriculture, which is my father's world, and I learned that. And he came from agriculture, the food part of, uh, of gardening. And, and so we make a good team, I think, in that respect, because I learn a lot from him every day. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, we want people to, to read the book, uh, but maybe you could just give us a sort of an, an, an abbreviated version. And I know you've sort of mentioned it a little bit, but uh, how, uh, an abbreviated version of how gardening is changing the world. Well, the book is broken down into sections. There's 52 chapters, and I'm thinking was, well, what if you read a chapter every week? You could finish the book in a year. Uh, truth is, it's not that big a book, uh, and you can do that if you like, but it seemed like a nice number. There are um, four sections to the book. The first one is embracing nature. So we set, we set up this whole idea about escape to reality and our relationship, our, our new relationship with Mother Nature um, uh, by, t- by talking about gardening success, talking about insects, the unsung gardening heroes, uh, what we can learn from the British, because I've spent so much time over there, and and their pedigree is is to gardening. What I, I like, I use this analogy here at home. What the Canadian pedigree is to hockey, the British pedigree is to gardening. Because if you're a, if you're a Canadian that's never been to the UK, it's difficult to imagine just how deep this runs. And the truth is, it's over 500 years old. Hockey has only existed for a little over 200 years. So it's not even a fair comparison in that respect, but it helps people understand uh, that we can learn a lot from the British. The second part is food prosperity and building community. So it's it's about um, the role of food in the gardening experience. And it's not simple. It's not one thing. It's a lot of things. And it's dragging a lot of people who are racialized, who are from high-risk neighborhoods in our urban in our urban spaces. It's, it's dragging them up. It's lifting them up through the community garden experience, through cooking together and learning from local chefs that have donated their time. We talk about that, community food centers, where people come together to grow food, excuse me, come together to grow food and prepare it. Then we talk about the value of the gardening experience. So we're moving, we're moving the reader down a garden path, if you like, that helps them understand at a new level how the gardening experience is different today. And thank you, millennials, because you've dragged us into this, right? You, you, you've dragged us out of this dependence on chemicals to produce a beautiful garden, to produce a garden, a beautiful garden without it, and you're changing our view, our vision of what a beautiful garden is. So the value of the gardening experience. And then finally, we the last section is sowing a vision. And here we talk about the future. We talk about the trajectory of this path that we're on. And it's mm-hmm. very, very exciting if you ask 
me. Best chapter in the book is the last one that was written by Ben. It's called Finding Meaning at the End of Growth. And uh, uh, I recommend to your listeners that the best thing you can do is read the last chapter first, then go to the beginning. Because it helps you understand Ben, mm-hmm. written when he was 26 years old, he's 30 now, uh, and it helps you understand a little bit about the millennial mind and how they view the gardening experience differently. Excellent. All right. I've already ordered a copy. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Mark Cullen, gardening guru and author of Escape to Reality, How the World is Changing Gardening and Gardening is Changing the World, co-authored by his son, Ben. Uh, we'll provide a link to that book in the show notes. Uh, we'd also like to encourage encourage our listeners to check out cullenfoods.com. If you enjoy black turtle beans, chickpeas, dark red kidney beans, lentils, or navy beans, all produced without any salt, colorants, preservatives, or f- firming agents. We'll have a link for that as well in the show notes. Mark, once again, it was a delight to have you with us. Thank thank you so much. And we'd love to have you and perhaps Ben uh, on the show anytime. Thank you, Jason. Thanks, Ariel. This has been a pleasure. So much fun. Thank you. Thank you. Take care.